welcome to another episode of a tiny little show that we're calling Connect This. This is a, a show that is dedicated to real conversations about issues of, of broadband um, and things that we think are related with people that like broadband and do a lot of broadband related work. Uh, I'm uh, back uh, once again. We're going to try and do this a little bit more um, regularly with topics ahead of time, maybe even ask you for input ahead of time. Uh, certainly appreciate the folks who watch it live and gives us some questions. Today, we're going to be talking about overbuilding and competition. And we're going to be talking about that with Deb Sosha, who's coming back for her second episode. Deb is the high president and CEO of the Enterprise Center in Chattanooga. Welcome back, Deb. Thanks, Chris. We also have Brian Worthen, who's here for the first time, but he's been on the Community Broadband um, Bits podcast before. Brian is the almighty CEO of Visionary Broadband. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. And we got Travis, my co-host for all these episodes, the man who makes this show worth watching. Uh, Travis is the dear leader of USI Fiber in Minneapolis. Hello, Chris. Great to see you again, Hello, Travis. Sir. How are you? And then I'm Chris, Chris Mitchell. I am the court broadband jester at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. <laughs> so just trying to do something a little bit fun to kick off every episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about competition today, although not in the way that we've talked about it before in terms of open access. Um, open access. That's why we stayed up here in Minnesota. Um, and um, we're going to be talking more about overbuilding, uh, which is a, a word that probably we shouldn't even be using because it just reinforces the wrong ideas about this stuff, but I'll use it a few times. It's really about whether governments should be encouraging or, or discouraging competition. So when we're talking about that, 25 years sitting here after the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and most Americans barely have a choice. Um, so um, I want to do the kickoff question again, um, just to, to get things rolling quickly. And that question today is, we're hearing a lot about breaking up, um, breaking up the tech giants like uh, Amazon, like uh, Facebook, Google, others, uh, the sense of breaking up. And, and I'll start with you, Deb. Um, uh, should, we, should we encourage the, the federal government to use its powers to break up Comcast? I was really hoping you wouldn't start with me, Chris. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I, I am of two minds with that. I think that one of, the, one of the conditions of their merger years ago was that they run uh, internet essentials across the country. Internet essentials had a shelf life in that agreement and they have gone beyond it and they've actually improved access through it. And I'm really pleased about that because for a lot of communities, you know, think Chicago, this has been a, a really important outcome they've been able to connect kids. Um, so I, I'm kind of of two minds because any, I, I don't think we need any more great big companies running broadband. On the other hand, I'm kind of happy that they've done this other thing that was a condition of the merger. Okay. So you're going with no because of public benefits that, um, that go wider because they have so many people they're in front of. <clears throat> Brian, what do you think? Well, the... First of all, you said breakup, and then instantly black helicopters I could hear circling over the, the building. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a time 20 years ago, we'd rush home on Thursdays to watch Seinfeld and Friends and whatnot. And I'm really hoping for that again from NBC. So I don't necessarily want to break up Comcast. I still have high hopes that there's another Seinfeld out there. But to answer it more uh, uh, professionally, I would say whatever results in better broadband. I'm, I'm truly a believer in better broadband. We, we need to solve this for the nation. And if, if it helps, great. If it hurts, 
don't do it, right? So, so the analysis would hinge on um, some kind of of evidence that one um, direction or the other would be better for broadband deployment. Right. What's the impact on broadband? Okay, Travis, I think I think we haven't had a yes or a no yet. Yeah. So I guess I would take a I would say no, and. I guess my rationale is I think cable and Comcast is a good baseline for communities and they do a reasonably good job as an operator. So the question I would ask is what are the hurdles to build competition on top of that baseline? Because I'm not sure that any other person that would come in and take over the cable plant here in Minneapolis would do a much better job running it. The, the, the real question is why do we have very little competition predominantly, well, almost anywhere. That to me is a more broad question. So Comcast, keep doing what you're doing. All right. So but, now it's on me. Go ahead, go ahead, Deb. I would just say, but please get better customer service. That would be my one caveat. <laughs> so I, I didn't, I wasn't sure what to expect from y'all. And I, I said that I would just kind of make up my mind on based on things that weren't said. And so I guess I'll have to say yes, um, yeah, that I would lean strongly in favor of breaking Comcast up. I um, I think I picked Comcast. I went back and forth on this because I feel like it's easy to ask, should you break Charter Spectrum up? Charter Spectrum is a mean company. They treat their employees poorly. They're not a very good company um, in terms of the technologies that they use. They're, Comcast is a professional company. Um, Comcast has done more for um, high quality broadband stuff than just about any of the other, all, than probably all the other big companies combined, I think. So um, just want to make sure that, okay. Um, I get these notifications. I was worried it was something from Rye that something's gone horribly wrong in the stream. So I think the question is um, um, with uh, with Comcast is one of of political power. I think uh, a company the size of Comcast is too big. And so even though I think Travis is right, I think if you broke Comcast into five pieces, I think that several of those pieces would be run in a less professional manner um, uh, in the short term perhaps. Um, I hope that it would result in more competition. There'd have to be requirements. We didn't just have an AT&T temporary situation, um, but there would be real trade-offs. And I think that it would be worth it if only to prevent one or two companies from having the kind of power they have in state capitals and in um, Washington, DC. So um, that said, I'm not really holding my breath for that. <laughs> um, and and for, for people who are really into this stuff, I think we've been thinking um, primarily of breaking them up um, horizontally, not vertically. And that's a whole different question, but whether a company should be able to have the number of subscribers that Comcast has. So um, this is an interesting question that we can um, come back to if people are interested in, in the future. We'll see what happens with the tech giants. Uh, we are going to talk about overbuilding and competition almost exclusively this show. We're not going to do some intro um, topical items because this is such an interesting question. But we do have a new thing that we're going to do, which is that I am going to share a picture. And I'm going to ask if Travis can identify what this wireless attachment is doing in, uh, in St. Paul. Um, so um, I think you can see that, Travis. Um, well, let's see. It's a Yagi. That you're showing me the antenna, though. So what? Is, what? What am I pointing at here? What is the Yagi? It's a it's a directional antenna. I'm gonna say somewhere in the one gigahertz range, based on the length. But you see, the black cable goes to a something. I was kind of assuming that was like a box underground or something like that. 
Now, this is just the antenna for a radio, but the radio is elsewhere. Right. So that's what I was wondering. Like, what what kinds of things would use this antenna? Or can you not tell without seeing um, the radio? No, you know, uh, 900 megahertz was a, a dominant one in the WISP industry that used antennas like this. Um, back in the day when we used to get aerial uh, television up here in Minnesota, out of, out of, out of Minneapolis out of Shorewood, you would point your Yagi towards Shorewood to get it. Lots of things use this. If you've ever seen the football teams that have the, um, or the, the press where they have those big domes the with parabolic arrays. Yeah, yeah that, there's a Yagi in the middle of that. Um, I would say whoever installed this could have cut the pipe a little shorter, though. I would have say that. But um, other than uh, that, I can't tell you what's on the other end unless you have another photo. If you're going to bring up the the football games, I just always like to point out that those those folks are almost always wired. Uh, They don't trust wireless, whether the the cameras or the parabolic arrays. So um, for um, Brian, you look like you were enjoying that. Anything you want to add? Yeah, it's 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 obviously something in the 900 megahertz range. It's used to control a traffic light or, you know, some, some low bandwidth type application, maybe a DOT installation or, you know, monitoring some sort of cross box or, or something that uh, is at that site. Okay. So oh, hold like, on. Hey, Chris, is this near your house? Yes. Okay. Hang on, Brian. It's 5G. It's cooking your brain right now. Isn't this this new 9G that's so amazing? So you're going to have, <laughs> you're going to have multi-teraflop connectivity to your home in less than a week. Yeah. Well, That's right. If Congratulations. So, if so, it shows remarkable foresight because, yeah. and I'll, I'll try to use more um, accurate language because that antenna uh, has been there for, I think, more than 10 years. Um, and so perhaps the radio is different, but, uh, I but would that antenna has been in the same you, spot for a long time. I'd guarantee you to, to Brian's point, it's probably part of traffic control. And I would also tell you, it's probably not even used anymore. It's no one ever bothered to use it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, we are going to talk about overbuilding and competition. And um, Deb, I wanted you to come in because you've given this a lot of thought while you're at Next Century Cities. Uh, Travis and Brian, you're both entities that, um, well, does Visionary have an incumbent territory? I think of you, you're so big now that you're, um, you're almost entirely a competitor. We're just entirely a competitor. There's no incumbent territory to us. Okay. So we're hearing once again about overbuilding and the evils of overbuilding. Um, And, you know, Brian, Visionary has been embroiled in in some um, accusations that were made that um, have been litigated a bit and and may, you know, we're working on a a story that goes more into it. Um, I don't know that we need to get into that, but if we uh, if we do, that's fine. Uh, but I was wondering if, um, since this is something that really motivates you thinking about these lines, um, when you hear the word overbuilding, what do you think about that word? Well, when, when you say this shows about overbuilding and competition, overbuilding is actually discussing competition. So th- they're used interchangeably and th- at, at a governmental level, overbuilding is code word for did we spend federal dollars twice in the same area? That's really what overbuilding uh, is trying to encapsulate. Is it, uh, is that, is that, I mean, let me just push back on that for a quick second for that definition. Cause I think it's a worthy definition. Um, is it federal dollars or is it just spending federal dollars even once in an area where there is already some service? There's this notion that, that people can plant a flag in an area and it's untouchable right? And as a competitive provider, we fight against that every day. 
because you've got an incumbent LEC, you've got an incumbent cable company. And in some locations, I can think of three or four towns right off the top of my head within an hour of my, of my home, there are, there's only one provider. Uh, there's not even a cable provider. So the, the notion that, that overbuilding is, is, uh, is establishing another program or funding source to, to um, supplant a monopoly, that's actually a positive thing. That's that you know, it boggles my mind to think about this. You've got the FTC. You're talking about should should uh, large companies be be uh, broken up? You got the FTC on one hand, and you got the FCC handing out broadband funds on the other, and they're doing this whole West Side Story thing where each is on the other side of the street, and we're doing this yin and yang thing, right? Uh, should we get bigger? Well, there's more efficiencies, and larger companies can take advantage of funds much better than smaller companies, and so there's this whole dichotomy of we need to protect the monopoly and that's been around forever and that's what the entire telecom lobby is all about is well we don't want to we don't want to spend this money where money has already been spent or where people have made investment i make investment every day travis makes investments every day it's it's a good thing deb uh what do you think of when you hear the the term overbuilding from all of your term working on this i would say that it is more of a term used by lobbyists than it is necessarily anybody in the field. We know what it means. It means we are going to have more than one provider. That means it's competition. I mean, Jonathan Sallet says, what some people call overbuilding should really be called by its more familiar term, competition. And I think Jonathan Chambers also talks about it a lot in the rural community because what he says, overbuilding is not a problem in rural America. It's actually the solution, right? So to me, Anytime we can think of a way to bring competition into a market, we're going to improve service, we're going to reduce costs to the consumer. And for me, that's a win. Yes, John Sallet um, writing, um, I actually wrote this down because I want to make sure we credited him. He did wonderful work in his paper, Broadband for America's Future, a Vision for the 2020s, put out by the um, Benton Institute for Broadband and Society. Um, and he's done a lot of very good thinking about this sort of stuff. So Travis, overbuilding, what do you think of? Um, you know, historically, I really haven't thought about, you know, are we overbuilding somebody else? Because to me, that means like you're just putting in something that's similar to what's already there. I guess maybe we like to call it uh, over improving to be bringing in <laughs> the latest and greatest, you know, technology where the citizens and, you know, constituents can benefit from and hopefully we can build a solid financial and business model around it so overbuilding i guess that's just a, a somebody coined the term i guess uh i'm, I'm oh. all for it <laughs> yeah, no i think the term i think the term actually came from and i hope there may be people out there who know much better than me, but I think the term came from a monopoly environment, right? Um, in economics, which was um, the telephone system um, was a monopoly. It was, and there was not expected to be competition because uh, it was felt that competition would be harmful to the overall system. Uh, the cable system, many cities had exclusive franchises. And then as those went away, a new entrant would be considered overbuilding. And uh, many of those didn't work very well because of uh, the economics that have continued to limit competition when you have incumbents that have so much power. Um, and so I, I, I know that we are, we don't have everyone's point of view on this. I mean, we have two providers that are both aggressive 
in here and 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 build great networks and aren't worried about defending you know some networks that's that's putting out 20 megabits per second with by by gaming the statutes um or the the programs but um you know should we should we have government um like, I mean, Brian made this point. So let me put it to Deb. Um, should we have government emphatically trying to break monopolies by putting money into areas to encourage competition? I, I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to have a caveat to that, right? So we should have, uh, government should be allowed to do whatever they need to do to ensure every resident in their community has fast, affordable, and reliable broadband. If that means that they're going to build it themselves, they should build it themselves. If it means they're going to engage in a public-private partnership, an open access network, whatever they have to do, they ought to be empowered to do. Uh, I think about, you know, I, I live in Chattanooga. Uh, there are incumbent providers here, and there is EPB, our utility, and I pay less than $70 for a gigabit symmetrical in my home. I would never be paying that much for a gigabit symmetrical in a community where there weren't uh, overbuilt environments, right? Because there wouldn't be any competition for that. And if we think about the places where uh, municipal broadband has become, um, has been brought into place, we see the same thing happens everywhere, right? Prices go down, services, the service is better, and the speeds are higher. So I, I think government should get involved when and where they need to. Yeah, I should have been more clear. Um, and I, I think that the answer is right. Like, I think there's a different bar for local government investing in itself than for the federal government oh. to put mm -hmm. um, taxpayer dollars into this in, a, in, a, in designing a program in that way. Um, yeah. um, so sure. Travis, I mean, I, I mean, I, I feel like if I could put words in your mouth, Travis, I feel like you would say, look, like, where I'm operating, there's no problem. You know, like you're the second or third competitor in almost every case, Travis. Um, but you're making an investment in rural Wisconsin right now. Um, and now if you were putting up, um, you know, let's say, let's say you're putting up a 50 megabit wireless system um, and, and you committed to that investment. And then you found out the federal government was going to work with an electric co-op to put in a gigabit. Would you freak out? You know, how would you feel about that? Well, yeah, because this goes back to that reoccurring theme we have of what is broadband. And I'm a strict, I mean, I, I think the definition of 25.3 is ridiculous, but that's, that's why I picked 50. I didn't want to make it too easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question is, so if you put a gigabit symmetrical product in any market, and actually this is becoming very eye-opening for me in Wisconsin, our uptake is actually double in, in the rural Wisconsin area than it is in the metro area of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So the economics work amazing in this rural community we're going into, but I would, I personally would never go in with a 50 megabit wireless product. I would, I would only put in gigabit fiber and just make, you have to make the math work because I'm a real proponent of let's build one time. You know, I don't know. I don't know how many trillions of dollars the federal government's rolling out to all these wireless providers, but we're going to be having the same conversation three, four years from now. Now, I see Brian nodding his head, but the the rural business can't be that good. I mean, look at the computer you have behind you that you have to work with. That thing's ancient. You've got paper on your bookshelves. I mean, like you're working with paper. Yeah. You must, you're struggling in those rural areas. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Our markets, it, that's a that's an interesting question you just posed to Travis, because when we grew up and we started with five Hayes modems, right? 
uh, in, a, in a dial up environment. We've been in business 26 years. We grew on our own cash. And so we automatically looked to wireless as a way to bridge that gap until we we're ready to put in more capital. Um, I, I, the, answer, the answer to the question is, I would be frustrated if somebody received funding to build one gig over the top of me, but I can tell you this too. In the last couple of years, we've totally shifted our focus and we know we need to build fiber. We know we need to go down that capital route. And I'm in, the, I'm in likely the same situation as Travis where we're borrowing, we're, we're financing, um, you know, we're, we're building the investment based on a seven-year ROI or a five-year ROI or 10-year. Um, so yeah, we, we started building fiber in Kremlin, Colorado, LaGrange, Wyoming, Yoder, Wyoming, look those up, they are not big. And rural is very hard to answer the question because I'm in Wyoming, there are six people per square mile. And it's, and I am shocked that we're still in business, but I think it's just because we're innovating. And that's something that Deb, Deb covered very well is competition produces better speeds, better service, lower prices, but also you, you, you have innovation paired up with that. And that's the benefit of competition is, it's forced us in a rural environment to innovate and, and to think ahead and to, and to bridge that gap. Now, the question, Chris, if I could intervene, is would I be a fan of the federal government putting money into a provider to overbuild Brian's already established fiber network? Abs- you know, absolutely not. It's you know, that, that to me would be, you know, because Brian and I are out here taking all the risks in the world and leveraging our, our debt out as far as we can to build this and somebody gets free tax dollars to come in and overbuild us. No, that would be a, that would be a problem. Now, I think it's worth noting, we don't know of any programs that are um, dealing with that scenario. Um, but if you are a provider that's rolling out, you know, um, like for instance, like 50 megabit wireless, um, depending on what happens with the infrastructure bill, there may be auctions in which providers would get money to build um, a higher quality product over 50 megabit, people that are delivering 50, even 75, 80 megabits. Um, the way the program is written um, is uh, what they call mid-tier service. Sure. Um, and so um, I, I, you know, I, I think that we need to do that. And, and this is, this comes down to one of the questions that I have, which is even through this discussion, um, you know, we framed it in this way and for the, for a specific reason, I think, and that's that this discussion is always about what's fair for the provider. It's almost never about what is best for the community, what's best for local businesses, what's best for residents. It's more about the, as Brian put it, you plant that flag as an ISP in an area. And maybe you took risk, maybe you took less of a risk because you had a government monopoly 50 years ago when you built it. But like, nonetheless, there's this sense that the overriding concern is that the person or entity that planted that flag. Deb, is that, is that what you remember from policy conversations? Yeah, it does seem that way. And I think the, you know, the frustration is that somebody may have invested money 25 years ago and not want anybody to come in and overbuild, except the product is so crappy, right? And so we want a better product. And so the only way you're going to get that is to overbuild or to replace that copper with fiber, right? So, but yes, I think that's exactly right, Chris. Brian, I mean, to me, that seems like, you know, you're someone who sees the world. I mean, I, one of the things I've loved about our conversations, it's very clear that you see the world both as someone who runs a, um, a business, uh, but also that's not the only way you see the world. <laughs> you also see it through the eyes of the people that need the service. 
Well, I still go to Walmart and see my neighbors that have service through myself or my, you know, the local cable provider. And, and, and I still have that pulse, right? But in a, in a state with less than 600,000 people in the whole state, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a big town is what it is, which is, uh, I think one of our senators coined the phrase, it's the big town with long roads, right? And uh, everybody knows everybody and you have to be in tune. And the, the interesting part about this plant the flag discussion and, and what Deb just said is ultimately is the provider who, who started there and is the incumbent. And I think this helps to answer your question earlier, Chris, have they been a good steward of, for that community? And are they helping that community progress or are they just keeping that community stagnant from a broadband standpoint? Because I can tell you this right now in rural America, we are seeing home prices go up because people realize they can get medical care at these rural hospitals much better than in the city. Uh, this, this environment we're in right now and have been for the last year is such that people can work from home and some companies are already saying that. And now we're seeing an influx into some of our markets and the, the providers that have not done a good job in their community and have not kept pace with speeds and product and started to put fi you know, mix fiber into their, into their portfolio are going to hinder that community from attracting a new business, a new resident. Yeah, we saw that with um, my colleague, Sean wrote a story about Western Mass. Um, and one of the communities it was remarkable in terms of the turnaround of real estate uh, once they had fiber and they went from having really poor DSL, if you were lucky, to having fiber in places that took, I think they said months and years to sell. Places that were just sitting on the market started getting snapped up um, because of that, that connectivity. Yeah, so I'm, I'm and sure. conversely, and conversely, if you don't have that connectivity, you can't sell. And especially now with AT&T uh, walking away from its DSL, if you sell your house, the next person can't even get DSL. So it is really a problem in those rural communities that don't have connectivity. One of the things that we're seeing that we're seeing is that government programs are designed to deal with this concern about overbuilding. And so, you know, state of Minnesota, most states probably all the states that give out broadband money have some kind of challenge process, which is the idea that, um, that someone comes in and says, all right, I want to grab this grant or this loan and I want to build it in this area. And it looks like there's not a lot of service there. And then the incumbent is able to challenge that and say, oh no, you know, I do provide service there. And Brian, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ridgeway example out of Colorado. Um, I mean, it's one of several that we've seen where a major provider has gamed the system and basically a town that had poor service, um, um, the incumbent basically laid claim to it, planted that flag. And rather than getting a gigabit at an affordable price, the CenturyLink says, oh, we're going to do this like really awesome DSL. That's going to be the super deluxe, you know, 2020 version of DSL. And, um, and so... Um, you have much fewer commitments and, and yet they get that territory. Uh, and this is something that just infuriates me because I also think that then for someone like you, Brian, you're doing these grants to, you know, you're, you're investing time to come up with a plan to go to a community that needs your service. And then someone who's already there and has refused to invest year upon year gets to basically say, nope, all that work you did was for nothing. Yeah, that's interesting to think about too, because when CAF came out and there was that challenge window 
we had a big discussion here internally about do we challenge some of the areas where we actually provide service? Because as you know, 477 data is not published by the FCC for up to a year, right? So it's actually not representative of what people have been investing in for the last year or 13 months or 14 months. And we had a big discussion here internally. We said, if we challenge for CAF2 in some of these areas, we will be viewed as the bad guy trying to hold the communities back. And what was interesting is there was a, a wireless provider in the Rockies that, that wound up challenging um, the CAF2 um, area that was approved and they got, they got fried in the marketplace. What are you doing trying to hold these communities back? So there's that aspect of, do you do what's right for the community and for people and to have choice? Because I can tell you this, the challenge process is all about defense, right? <clears throat> like when we looked at the RDOF challenge, the CAF challenge, even after the results, we didn't sit there and challenge it or, or talk about somebody overbuilding us. And I can tell you that people receiving money in areas where we've invested my money and my brother's money personally, right? And, and that's the frustrating part. However, we're not frustrated about it. We didn't spend time looking at this defense plan. We're on offense, right? We're out there trying to do the right thing and stay ahead of it. And so the example you describe in Ridgeway is the example of CenturyLink taking a copper plant and trying to milk another few years out of it. And I don't blame him. If you had a Toyota Tacoma with 200,000 miles on it, you said, if I put this $3,000 in it and get another 100,000 miles out of it, I will. So from a business standpoint, I get it. Is it gonna hold the community back? Yes. It comes back to what Travis said earlier is 25 megs, not good enough. We should be saying that everybody in broadband should be saying that every day. We're writing legislation right now, still around 25 by three. Although I think it's almost gone. I mean, I, I do think we're oh, going to see a new standard. And, and I'm very curious. Um, I, I, I was just telling my team today that one year from today, hey, Travis, I'll bet you uh, a plate of wings, which should, if I win or if I lose, would be the first time I've ever bought you anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll bet you a plate of wings that in one year, the definition of broadband is much better. Oh, hold on. You left that kind of open. What do you mean much oh, better? Oh, I think, I think it'll be minimum. <clears throat> okay, let's just, I think... I think Comcast is betting it's going to be 55. I mean, they up their internet essentials. 55. That's yeah, not much better. 50 by five. It's not much better. It's, it's in Canada actually adopted 50, 10, um, just, uh, I believe two or three years ago as their target. I'll add to the wing bet, but I would yeah. only respect hundred meg by 10 meg. Okay. So, so um, you're going to have to, uh, it would be more, it would be, be really interesting to collect, but I'm going to look forward to that. Um, so I'm saying, um, I, so let me just lay out, lay this out and we'll, we'll, we'll get the stakes and Deb, you can get in on it too. Um, okay. Um, and um, so Jessica Rosenworcel, among others uh, on, on the FCC have, have called publicly for 100 megabits symmetrical. Today, several senators, including um, Senator Bennett from um, Colorado, who I think has been a real leader on this, uh, have called for 100 megabits symmetrical. Um, and um, I, I think it may depend on the chair because uh, I don't think this is gonna get resolved until there's a new FCC chair and it might depend on that. I don't know that I want to stick my my wing bet on 100 100. So I feel like I want to go low and say 50 10. Um but um but y'all can call me chicken. Um So hold on let, uh, let me let me understand the bet. I'm going to buy the wings if it's 25 3. So um, if it's 25 3 you're buying the wings. No no no. I, I, I buy them all time. I buy them all the time. So there's a chance <laughs> if it goes to 50 10 for the next 12 months, right? Oh, I got that this wrong. It's going to stay 25 3 for the next 12 months. 
No, yeah. So if yeah. it stays 25-3, then I have to buy some, I have to buy wings for Travis and I should do something else that's nicer too. I'm just um, kidding. So, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't think, because I think the cellular providers have too much power and that's who's controlling to keep this down. All right, so, so let's hear what Deb has to say. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick my neck out and go with 100 symmetrical. Okay. Ooh. I just really think we are in a position at this point where that's going to end up being necessary. I think what has pushed the, the upload speeds really has been the pandemic and how that has impacted people's capacity to work and learn from home. The upload speeds have been really a problem. Yeah. I, I think 100 symmetrical solves this overbuilding issue because at that point, you really can only put money into fiber to beat that. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I'm, we'll see what the FCC says about this gigabit wireless stuff. And, and Brian, you deal with the wireless stuff a lot. I don't know that I would, that I believe that you can deliver um, 100, 100 wireless regularly to everyone in a given area with, with a wireless product today. Um, and so at that point, then it seems to me we may have just gotten to the point of fiber. Um, no, you, you, for, you forgot about six gigahertz, Chris. Remember that whole six that, G not six gigahertz. Oh, six, <laughs> the, the six gigahertz band has opened up now. So that's right. Okay. Lot, so more, a lot more wireless spectrum for rural areas. How, how far here's, is six? Here's, six, here's how ahead. this, here's the best way to answer this. And, and we're joking about it, but here's the truth of it. And as a wireless provider, I understand this. And we've been doing our own small cells for a long time. If you're going to offer that kind of speed, you're talking about a tower area, eighth of a mile. That's what I was wondering. Are these yeah. communities going to tolerate that? Are people going to tolerate that? Uh, is, is, the, is the competitive environment between satellite, which you still use as frequency, and cellular and a broadband provider, I'm going to contend. And, I'm a, and, and a lot of my revenue is derived from wireless. I'm going to contend. You're exactly right. The way to ensure competition in the future and our funding should be built around fiber. Yep. This is some really good questions in the chat. So folks in the chat, um, I'm sorry, this is, uh, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I don't want to break the stream. Um, um, I do, I do want to, um, there's so many things I want to do. <laughs> this is um, so, um, such a good conversation. Travis, the six, let's just wrap this up. The six gigahertz. Would you agree with Brian that you just like, you have to build so many towers at that point. Like, I don't understand why you're, how that works. And you still have to send people out with trucks every time the wind blows too hard. Yeah. But if you can have 160 megahertz or 320 megahertz channel, it, again, it's a stop gap because I, you know, I like Brian's approach and he's probably used the similar approach that I used is you started, we started with wireless. We leveraged that income and EBITDA to, to, to put debt on the business to then reinvest in fiber uh, wireless was a tip of the spear. I just think with, with six gigahertz becoming available, it sharpens that tip. But if we don't redefine the definition of broadband, if 25.3 is satisfactory, then I get free wings in a year. I mean, it's just literally nothing's going to, we're going to have the same, you know, honestly, we've had the same conversation for how many years now? We're just going to have it next year. I'm so strong about this. No, no, no. I'm going to go out and say that I will buy all of the wings next year. After Whoa. from March until December. Pump yeah. the brakes, big shooter. Yeah. Now you're sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I um I, I think there'll be so much lobbying from the cellular companies. And we're gonna have a whole year of distraction from Starlink now as being the new 6G. So that's the question that just came up. And I I do want to come back to overbuilding. There's a lot to talk about. And I think this is even related. Um, you know, I um tell us what you think about Starlink, Brian. And and Deb, I want to know if your thinking on it has changed as much as mine over the, the past several months. Brian, does Starlink keep you up at night? It, it makes me think about being better. 
um, which is good, right? I have to I have to keep sharp, and somebody has to keep me sharp. Um, the potential there is, and they're a recipient of RDOF funds. The potential there is is exactly what Travis described as a stopgap. Wireless is a wireless technology. So as a whole, is is a solution in rural America and in some some you know quasi rural areas for a period of time until something else can be figured out. We're doing the same thing with Starlink. It's a stopgap until something better comes out. Is there going to be a gigabit? Is there going to be a you know two gigabit, ten gigabit in the future? It's all limited by frequency and by how many satellites are in the sky. The bottom line is, are we? I, I think what's happened is we have chosen, uh, and I say we as a as a you know as as members of our society here have chosen to let the FCC hand out money to Starlink that's not going to to wind up as invested fiber in the ground in any one of these markets. Yeah, I want to toss it to Deb in a second, but there's a point I always have to make with this, which is that I don't mind Starlink getting money. I think the government can invest in these sorts of technologies that could have a major difference. The problem that I have is that there are counties in the United States, there's areas of the United States. Um, let me start that over. Starlink is going to serve just about everyone. And some parts of the United States are no longer eligible for funding for a terrestrial solution, while others are despite the fact that there's no differentiation in the service based on whether Starlink got that territorial money. That's just terrible policy. Um, so Deb, what's your feelings about Starlink more generally? I wasn't thrilled they got as much money from RDOF as they did. I'm also always skeptical. And so I wanna see it working. I wanna see it working well. I wanna see it working with low latency, high speeds, high uploads. And then I will step back. I wouldn't have minded if the government invested in it in a smaller way to prove the concept, but I just don't feel like we're there yet. So I would have liked to have seen those RDOF dollars gone into fiber. And Travis, what do you think about putting um, Uncle Sam putting money into, into Elon Musk, which is how some of my friends put it, which I think is distracting. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's interesting if you've ever tried to use cellular or you know internet i think it's a good alternative it's actually going to be a great alternative to cellular internet i always just think about my rv travels imagine having a starlink antenna on the roof it would be ideal but if i had the option of having gigabit symmetrical fiber coming into my home i wouldn't think twice about it so it's mm -hmm. it's, it's 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 a better uh, 5g i guess is what i'll, what I'll say it's 5.5g yeah, it's fine. But, but again, it's just wireless at the end of the day. Everyone thinks it's going to be this great miracle. And instead of it bringing run a, one of Brian's towers over maybe on a grain leg, it just happens to be over your head. I mean, it's, there's really nothing different. There is a better line of sight directly over my head, which is nice. Well, yeah, until it goes behind trees or, I mean, have you ever used a satellite dish? You know, I know. Well, I I know yeah, no, I'll, I'll say. But it's, it's not going to be. Yeah, There's no, going to be I, challenges with it. There are going to be challenges with it. I'll just say that I was I found it remarkable when I spoke with um, people from the Ho tribe about the experiences they're having with limited sky coverage and the limited number of birds already up there. Mm. I thought it was they were having quite good results. It seemed like um, the um, um, 
We'll add that on the vine. I want to um, direct us um, yeah. back. I think, oh, I wanted to say, um, don't buy one and put it on your RV because I think they're currently geo-locked okay. as they're building the fleet. Yeah. So you cannot drive around with it. Um, so Travis, yet. we'll do that together as we sample the wings of the West in a, in a future <laughs> without COVID. <laughs> um, so uh, one other question uh, that, I, that I really wanted to get to, I mean, there's a lot of them here, but I have ones I wrote that I'm really partial to because I wrote them. Um, is is overbuilding is this purely about a better technology or are there other reasons like you know um let's just like let me pick on frontier if frontier was providing you know um um fiber that barely worked um i think their fiber is not nearly as good as other people's fiber from what i've heard but nonetheless like in rural areas if they already had a decent technology but they're still crap or a real example suddenlink in eastern north carolina a bunch of mayors are writing to the attorney general because suddenlink claims to have high speed but it works like three days a week and it's just awful um what other considerations should go into whether or not um uh the government decides to try to bring a competitor into an area I think customer response is number one. I mean, and you mentioned it. If, if I, as a customer, can't get good service, it's not reliable, it's not fast enough, it's not affordable, um, then I think the go that government should get engaged. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting to think about that question because you're saying somebody has to be vocal and in a competitive environment where competitors are keeping each other sharp in a, in a truly capitalistic fashion, there's no need for people to be vocal because the, the the provider has to step up. So what we're talking about is this protected monopoly environment. Still. So one of my one of my hobby horses right now is uh, is price issues with this whole overbuilding concept because um, in in Washington right now there's a um, we have public utility districts some of whom have invested significantly in rural fiber optics um, some providers use those to extend so a, a provider might pick up um, a fiber optic line from the public utility district and extend that although it's, I think it's more likely they would extend it wirelessly to offer a service. And the public utility districts, not all of them, some of them are seeking retail authority because currently they have to um, wholesale their service to a provider that would then have the relationship with customers. And in the Senate, we see a real reluctance to allow public utility districts to do this. And they've created this, another challenge process in which if a provider, if a, if a retail, if a public utility district wanted to build gigabit fiber and be a retailer, um, then, the existing providers in that area would get to say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I have a plan to do 100 megabit by 20 megabit. And so I can block that gigabit fiber. There's no language about pricing. Uh, and so I could come in and say, I'm going to offer a $150 wireless connection for you know, 100 megabits. And I get to block potentially a $70 gigabit fiber coming into an area. Um, to me, this is, this is ridiculous. And have a are panel we talking about rural me. markets? Are we talking about rural markets? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Because I, I have I have connections I buy from Ponder APD in Eastern Washington. We own a building in Spokane. Um, we have services from Franklin PD and and others. Um, so you're one of the ones that can challenge people. them. They're great people. The the underlying issue is, and and I've thought a lot about this over the last couple of years. In fact, I think two years ago, Chris, I told you the utilities are going to win this game. You did. Bank. I love. Yeah. And here's why they can borrow money on a 20 year note from RUS. I can't borrow money on a 20 year note. Travis can't borrow money on a 20 year note. 
And if he can, I need to talk to Travis, right? He's now let's be, let's be clear about this. So what you're saying is that um, investors don't trust uh, uh, most private companies to do that long of a term of financing. Is that what that translates to? Right, because the co-op, the the utility companies started as a co-op, and they needed that ROI to be long to to mm -hmm. justify building, you know, electrical connectivity out to the hinterlands, right? And we're talking about the same utilities now that are, have the same funding mechanism, and their ROI is different. And now you're saying that as a matter of fact, do you view that as a threat to the American way of life? <laughs> no, it's a great opportunity. I mean, in in the end, who has who? I, I told you this two years ago. There's only one entity that already has a line into these homes, and that's the utility, right? So, so you know, overlashing or you know, running running fiber along those same lines, it makes a lot of sense. However, when you're talking about Washington and others and, and retail authority, Washington set up the PUDs to be open access, right? In the hopes that competition would come in. And so, what I think what they found is, and this is what we need to be talking about is. It's it's easy to say competition makes everybody sharper. I say the same thing, but in a town of 700 people, which you you know let's let's use mass 600 so I can divide it easily by three, that's 200 homes, right? Once you have one provider in there with fiber, nobody else that builds fiber is going to go in there, right? And so that's the issue you're outlining is whoever plants their fiber flag first can really set the prices, and who in their right mind is going to go invest in fiber in that market and hope to gain. 33% of the market, right? And and leave the rest to cable and, and, and the LEC and people that are that, that are fine with DSL, right? So th there's a there's a lot to unwrap there because in rural America, where these PUDs are in Washington, um, the they're not there's not enough population where the PUDs were able to sign up a lot of providers. We're a provider on some of those networks. And it's just it's just difficult. But this inability to sell retail keeps them from from further developing that platform. And so there, I could see the quandary they're in. Yes, and I think just to spell that out, one of the things that I get the sense of is that some investors are reluctant to give them a 20 year note if they do not know who's gonna be providing the services. Um, that seems to have been an issue, at least with Kitsap, which got an exemption um, that was very narrowly tailored in the past. So um, Deb, have we touched on most of the overbuilding stuff that, that you'd wanna to touch on? Are there any points you wanna just raise up? No, I would just say, you know, the I, I'm a proponent of allowing local communities and utilities to build their own. And so I would just say one of the frustrating things that I've seen is that um, when people are disallowed to help solve their own, their own broadband issues, we're creating a situation in which the private entities have all the power and the consumer has none. And I wish we would think a little bit more about making some of these decisions in a consumer-focused way. I believe you mean subscriber-focused way. My ears are screaming at me, Deb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> People participate in the internet. They do not consume it. Okay. You, as you know, is my... I'll take your um, <laughs> message. What and I... do you capitalize I in internet? You know it, Just and I asking. correct other people. I'm still, I'm still, you know, you were the executive director. You could have required that we did that all those years. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there was a, the worst fight we ever had at Next Century Cities when we were working together was over capitalizing internet. Um, it was a pretty amicable time. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm an educator, so I went with what the education scene said. So, yeah. She double crossed me. 
Travis, <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, have you seen anything in your work in Wisconsin that changes the way you feel about any of these topics? Um, or, or is it more reinforced your priors? Well, the thing that I keep thinking to myself is why are there not more Brian's out there in these markets? You know, we always talk about, you know, government, 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 but well, that's because you're with me. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's all I, I never think about the government unless I'm getting a speeding ticket, paying my taxes or talking to you. But the, uh, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, is what hinders individuals like Brian and I from developing these networks in these communities? Because as we went into this Wisconsin area, I mean, we got like 80% uptake day one, substantially better than we get in the metro area here day one. The appetite was so strong for this competitive service, but it made me think, why did we have to go there? Why wasn't there any sort of local? And Brian touched on it. It's access to capital. And is anybody willing to risk everything they have, their house, their future, their college, their kids' college? brother's to, money yeah brother's money seriously because that's what that's what brian and i had have to do and then you know well, you, you build up a network and now that now the government comes in and gives free money away to people to overbuild you yeah it kind of you know it kind of rubbed the guy wrong if, uh, if that was the case right but there's well, so me, much land out me, there. i don't know why we're not promoting more individuals getting into this industry and building their own networks not relying yeah. on the city to do it You've answered it. And here's proof that I listened to you while I'm licking my fingers, uh, yes, clean of whatever <laughs> sauce. Um, and, and that's that um, there's a lot of people who get into this thinking it's about getting two wires to talk to each other or getting the tech to work. And there's just not nearly as many people who have the business sense and, and know how to talk to the banks and that sort of a thing. Is that your sense, Brian, of how you'd answer that question? Yeah. And there's another group of people. That's true. That, that's because there's no manual for this, right? The big companies have been doing this for years and they just entered the broadband mark. I, we were first to offer DSL in Douglas, Wyoming and Cody, Wyoming. We beat the phone company to offering DSL. Mm -hmm. We put equipment in their CO. There's no book for that. There's no college class for that. I didn't go to college for that. And so it, it comes down to who who's willing to, we're, we're, the, we're the, the, the equivalent of the hackers in the 60s that were hacking phone, you know, pay phones and whatnot. And you have to push, you know, I, I learned how to read bills this year, right? And, and look at the omnibus. Legislative bills. To, yeah, and compare it to previous versions. And there's not, not everybody's willing to do that. You know, so, but there's also another group out there that I don't think we're talking about. And that is the people that have one or two communities. They've got service in one or two communities. They don't show up on anybody's radar because they don't know that they, they should file 477s. They don't know uh, what, you know, really what they don't know. And they're supported by, at their local community and they're, they're out there. There's a guy in, in Wamsutter, Wyoming called Gary. There's a guy in, in Rock Springs called Lance, right? The, uh, Wheatland, there's a guy named BJ. The, the, I, I can list them off, right? The, you know, and I go through Colorado and there's people that are not on anybody's radar out there just building. What's, what's troublesome about that is, and I've been in county meetings lately where I've turned to the, the local provider and said, you should file 477. I'm telling you, take half a day twice a year and file your 477. And the community hears me saying that and they're like, well, Brian's not the big bad wolf after all. And the provider hopefully hears that. Uh, and I know uh, we had a meeting uh, in, in the last part of last year with the provider and he says, how do you get access to right away? And I said, you go get your, your, your CPCN with the, with the state of Colorado. And we see him filing now for that CPCN. There's, there's a need to bring these people up because they're out there. 
and nobody knows they're out there. And so in the, in the example of Wheatland, Wyoming, great example, CAF was handed out there, RDOF was handed out there, CARES was handed out there, right on top of this guy because he's not following his 477. We're not doing anything to identify and then bolster these, these folks that have those local relationships that are known by their local utilities people that the community loves and supports and they're totally downtrodden with these programs. Deb, I feel like that description also fits the local governments that are trying to solve this in many ways. Yeah, as I was listening to Brian, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, of all the communities I've spoken with, not one of them really wants to get into the broadband business. They would much rather have somebody come in and provide them good service at a good price, right? Um, but when it doesn't work, somebody's got to do it and local communities are. Uh, I'm guessing there are some, in fact, I know of a few where they, they aggressively pursued putting in fiber to the home um, when they had some sort of decent service, but I think that's rare. I think most of our communities are overwhelmed for all the reasons that a small local provider would be overwhelmed. There's so much to know. There's a lot of, of legal wrangling, a lot of legal language, a lot of technical language that a local small uh, mom and pop organization or, or a local small uh, uh, municipality, just it, they'd prefer not to deal with. Um, but I think you're right. If we could find a way to, to bring people up and teach them what they need to know, we'd probably find a lot more of that happening. And, it, and always it comes down to funding too, right? How do we make the pathway for funding easier and more tenable for those small local organizations? I want to ask both of you what your right-of-way experiences have been. Um, this is, uh, if you listen to uh, a lot of Republicans, a lot of the industry-funded think tanks, um, even some of the ones that I think position themselves as being more moderate, they would say that the key to better broadband is mostly has to do with making it easier to deal with the permitting process. And so, Travis, you and I have talked about um, the fun you had over the years with Minneapolis. Um, what were your experiences in Wisconsin? So I, I appreciate the smaller communities substantially easier to work with. Now I'll say Minneapolis is really easy to work with now. Um, they, they put a new permitting system in and we usually get permits in 24 or 48 hours. It's just, you've got to build that relationship with that community. And the, the reality is once you start getting momentum in the area, the public works, people are not going to stand in your way. You just, it's, it's, it's doing all the homework on the front end, which can be very frustrating when you have no revenue coming in, you're paying debt service and you're trying to scramble around. No fiber providers will talk to you all the, you know, cause there's a shortage of everything and you're, you're scrambling trying to make something happen. I would say the permitting is probably the least of the concerns nowadays. It's relatively easy to navigate through that. Brian, you operate in a bunch of States. Um, what's your reaction to a focus on permitting as, and also, I'll just say, I've really sympathized anytime you have to cross federal lands. I, I have a whole rant about that, but let's focus on local permitting to start. I think that Travis hit on it. The smaller the town, the easier it is to build a relationship with the utilities department and the engineering department. Right away is difficult. And what we're finding is it's easy to go into town. Again, in my state, the biggest, biggest community is 60,000 people. So when we go into a town of 1,200 or 2,200, people, the, the issue is the town does not have a full-time uh, attorney. Yeah. And so I've actually been suggesting at a state level 
that state funds be used to fund a telecom attorney to assist these communities because what we're finding is the same thing as Travis. We're investing a lot of time getting behind the wheel of a Subaru, driving, driving in the middle of the winter to, to these meetings and showing them that we're real people and trying to build that trust. And, and it's hard because inherently communications companies are distrusted, right? So we have to bridge that gap first. And then we have to go through the, I don't want to say education process of what right rights away looks like. Can we get a franchise agreement? Can we, can we be treated as a telecom company? We have to go through that in every community we go to. And so there, there's some, a lot of legwork involved and, and there's, I think there's a way to bridge that gap where some funding's available for communities to actually have access to some sort of telecom support and, and, you know, just like companies farm out HR support this to be this farming out of telecom support because every community just, they understand cell towers, they understand, uh, you know, water, sewer and whatnot. But when it comes to fiber right away, they're like, why, why we, we already have somebody here. And it's just, it's a lot of time to invest. It's crazy. Does anyone have any um, last questions? I want to ask in a second, a question about what one thing you might change at the state or federal level to get more competition, more competition. Ooh, I um, thought a lot about this. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go right ahead. Give other people a chance to think. We've been talking about federal programs and I think that the, the federal programs are just a stopgap and they're not really creating true investment at a local level. And you look at the winners of RDOF and they're big companies or nationwide companies or people that want to be big and they're covering multi-states and is that going to create the relationship with the communities that Travis and I just talked about? I'd like to create uh, like a Lindbergh's first or Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic content. 